Just a minute and a half or so early, and uh, wanted to get things kicked off. This will probably be a shorter than normal episode. Could be a simple little episode. We're going to talk about getting ready for a big change. The big change comes in season every year about this time of year. It is officially fall. It's been that way for uh, over a week, I guess about 10 days total. It doesn't feel like it here. It, it doesn't feel like it here at all. It, it, it's uh, It's like summer. Here right now, when summer doesn't completely, totally suck, it's too hot in the absolute middle of the day, but overall it's okay. It, it feels like June, not October. But it looks like starting tomorrow, it starts to feel like fall for here anyway. Some of y'all, it's already cold, at least at night where you're at. And some of you guys are even further south than me. But there's something that happens this time of year. It's, it's a time deception is what it feels like. There is no doubt that 90 days in, you know, the beginning of the year or the middle of the year is exactly the same temporal function as it is right now, 90 days from right now forward. But there is something about October, November, December, where time just feels like it goes and it just cascades. And you go from fall and early winter where there's really a lot you can get done to, man, it's really freaking cold out there and it's raining and the rain is freezing on my face and my face hurts when I go outside and I don't want to be out there. And why is it like this now? Well, that's right. It's January 15th. Like it just seems like it sneaks up on you, doesn't it? And I think part of it is you have the whole holidays thing. And, and, and for those that are new to me, I get really tired of people who get upset when you say the holidays because they're like, it's a war on Christmas. I love Christmas. When I say the holidays, what I'm talking about is the lead up to Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving itself, the time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, Christmas and New Year's. That whole period of time for me is my favorite time of year. It always has been. I see my family more that time of year than I do any other time. We stop doing things and do nothing more than any other time of year, et cetera. It's just a great time of year. And I think it's part of what accelerates the whole experience and makes it feel like these 90 days go faster than normal. And it's good to stop and pause. And we'll talk about that someday, too. But, man, there's a lot of stuff that you can get done between now and, like, middle of January, where even if it gets cold where you are, it doesn't get that, why does my face hurt, why do I live here kind of cold? And what ends up happening is we kind of space out in this time. We don't plan for it. We don't get a lot done. And then we end up in that time. And we probably, if we would have planned, been able to get things done even when it's really, really cold like that. And that gets us ahead. And then we get well planned into our spring and we have a great year because we start the year now instead of on January 1st, if that makes sense. Kind of like the fiscal year thing, right? Or we don't. And a whole bunch of stuff that we said all year long. Well, this winter, I'm going to. This fall, I'm going to. That's a good thing to do once it's not so hot out. It, it becomes next winter. And next winter has a tendency to become never. And so I thought it would be good today to have kind of this little chat 
about how this time of year is the time to get on it. And there's just so much going on. You know, when I lived up north, you're well in the hunting season right now. We're in archery for deer season in Pennsylvania right now. We've already been through dove season. Uh, it would be this coming weekend, I believe, would be like the first weekend of small game season. Deer season's another few weeks out, right, with, with the rifle. Uh, you got your, your fall fishing and also there'd be a lot of things plus harvesting the garden going on with that. So there's a lot of different parts of the country with different kind of phases that you're going through. Like you're going to be really cold in November in a lot of the country. We're here. We might get a cold day or two, but not really like, especially during the daytime, <clears throat> even if we have overnights that go into the twenties the or whatever, it's still going to be 55, 65 degrees in the daytime. And it's going to be that time of year where if the sun comes out, if it's 50 degrees, you wear a T-shirt, right? 45 maybe even directly in the sun. Uh, cloudy and wet, not as much. But, you know, we're going to have a lot of uh, flexibility in our fall. So each one of us has to kind of look at this from a standpoint of what is the most important things that we want to get done before certain deadlines and metrics. So I'm hoping to do that with you today and then at the same time, not be a Grinch and take away the holidays and Christmas, et cetera. Anyway, before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is K9 Academy. That's Joel Riles' operation there, where you can learn to train your dog. Or the way I want to put it is you can be trained on how to train your dog. Uh, with the core obedience program, with ongoing mentoring, there's a bunch of different options at K9 Academy. Joel is without a doubt the best dog trainer I've ever met. And I'm including myself in that. He's way better than me. And I think I'm a pretty damn good dog trainer. Uh, he's an amazing guy. And I'll tell you, with K9 Academy, what it makes me think of is if you ask any dog trainer, and I'm talking about a professional like Joel, that d deals with this on a daily basis, what is the most difficult species that you have to work with? You might think it might be like, well, like a Malinois, because they're crazy, like my little girl, Belle, or, you know, or maybe it's some other breed that's really high strung, like a border collie or something. The answer they're going to give you is going to be a human. A human is the most difficult species you will ever work with as a dog trainer. Most dog trainers, you give them a dog and go away, and a week you come back, it's a different dog. But you give the dog back to the person and not so much. So the human is the real variable in this because dogs follow rules a lot better than humans do. If you learn to train first, then you will have a great experience as a trainer Check out K9 Academy to learn more. Next up today is uh, JM Bullion. Now, we're kind of talking about winter and going into fall and the holidays a little bit today, and it's coming faster than you think. And many of you guys like me, you have nieces, nephews, grandkids, kids, etc. lots of young people in your life, and it's Christmas, and ah, they want stuff. Look, again, I'm not a Grinch. I'm all for a toy here, candy there, whatever. But I think one of the best things you can do for young people in your life is to begin them on a path toward investing wisely in their future. And with silver especially, it's very inexpensive to pick up a couple, three pieces a year per kiddo and give them to them. We even for my grandson, we got like this really cool wooden treasure box thing to keep all his silver coins in. And, you know, Jam Bullion has a lot of cool different silver rounds and things like that where you can get things that are interesting to kids. And if you think about it, I can go back and try to remember when I was 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. And I have some good memories and faded memories and whatever. But what I can't tell you is anything that anybody gave me for my birthday, 
for Christmas, for anything like that, that I still have as a 51-year-old man. Except for one thing, a 22 rifle. I have a 22 rifle that I've had since I was 13 years old that was given for Christmas. That's the only thing I remember. Um, nobody ever gave me silver and gold for, for, for my birthday or for Christmas or whatever when I was a kid. I think if they did, that might be some stuff I would still have. It's the kind of thing that it endures. So while I think it's a good idea to invest in this yourself, I also would say this time of year, start thinking about building up those investment portfolios very inexpensively because you can get an ounce of silver 25 bucks ish. You know, think about how quick you could knock out an entire group of young kids and explain it to them. Like, go through and look at the different rounds and pick things out that you think that individual kiddo would find interesting and start teaching about the value of money. That's that's what I'll say about that for today. With that, let's go ahead and get on into it. And uh, one thing I, would, I did want to say about uh, J.M. Bullion, I, I had a comment uh, on one of the YouTube videos from last week that I'd, I've never had, no one's ever misunderstood before, but I, I thought I would at least clear it up. Sometimes when I talk about J.M. Bullion, I mention that I've been approached by the other three biggest precious metal houses in the country, and that's Monex, Atmex, and Lear Capital. And none of them wanted to do things the way J.M. does. I'll leave it at that. Well, somebody said, did you say Amex? No, it's Apmex, A-P-M-E-X. When if you hear me ever talk about other competing silver houses, that's what I'm talking about is Apmex. They are one of the biggest ones. They're one of the most affordable ones. They're, I have nothing against them. I just want to have a customer with a problem. I have a sponsor. I want to be able to say, hey, fix it. And I want the person I tell to fix it to never be a person that tells me, well, I can't do anything. My hands are, I don't, I don't do that, guys, just so you know. I've been doing this a long time, and that's one thing I will not have. And like telling me, well, this is your CSR. CSRs get fired. CSRs quit. I'm looking for somebody who's like got a title like director or president or COO or CEO when I'm dealing with people as sponsors. Anyway, and I have that with uh, Jam Bullion. Moving on, let's get on into it. So, yeah, let's talk about just where we're at in time. I almost felt like I was going to go into a Kamala Harris like loop there. The time is now, and the time that we are in is the now that we are in the time of now. <laughs> no, seriously, right? Um, just if you think about where we're at right now, this part of the year, to me, it really is when we start to feel like like you're coming down the back side of the hill on your bike, like when you're a kid. And you're like just pumping to get to the top of the hill, get to the top of the hill. And then it's a little less hard. It's a little less hard. The, the hill starts to level off. And then you're kind of on the plateau. And then poof, and then you're just zipping ass down the other side. That's what the fourth quarter has always felt like to me of the year. It's felt like that to me in business. It's felt like that to me on the homestead. When I was a kid, and I was so big. I mean, I like to hunt and all. But, I mean, when I was a kid, it was part. It was like my life was hunting, right? Like, that was like I lived all year to go fish all year because I could, but I lived to hunt. And no matter what it was, once we got into this time of year, it just felt like it was gone. And, again, it's the kind of thing that can just disappear on you. Like you feel like you have so much time, and next thing you know, it's Thanksgiving. And next thing you know, it's Christmas. And next thing you know, you're like, shit, i got to put the lights away. And so let's make the most out of it. And I think a good way to do that. We're really talking about this as homesteaders today. So I've mentioned business and stuff like that. Or if you are big into the outdoors or something or other things going on in your life, all of that plays into it. But 
breaking it down just as homesteaders today, I really see three places that we need to focus our minds on, you know, getting ready for this period of transition. The first one is our gardens, our orchards, basically all the vegetation. And there's a lot of things in that, like, am I going to have a, a winter garden or I'm going to put the garden to bed until spring? I'm going to do like a soil conditioning program because the, the thing we don't want to do is nothing. Nothing results in a big gnarled mat of weeds in the spring and us getting our stuff planted later, right? Is there any kind of uh, uh, pruning that needs to be done, et cetera? And we'll talk more about this in a minute. But just that's like the vegetation. So when I say gardens, I also mean the apple trees that need to be pruned every year. I mean all of it. Anything that grows from the ground and is rooted in the ground. Then we need to think about the things that are alive on our property that aren't bolted to the ground. Livestock, our chickens, our ducks, our pigs, our you know our sheep, depending on what we have. We need to think about them because you know there's some stuff that has to happen. There might be some of our critters that need to graduate into freezer camp because we don't want to feed them all through the winter. Or if we are building up a herd or a flock, we may really need to think like like for some of you guys, this might be your first year overwintering your livestock. So, I mean, because this is pretty common, right? Chick days come, everybody goes down to tractor supplier, wherever they hear peep, 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 get some chickens, bring them home. Not really ready for them, but chickens are really resilient. You have them in a brooder. Usually, especially your first time you ever have them, you take them inside for three weeks and dilly dally with one degree temperature decrease a day or some bullshit. They tell you you need to do that. You don't need to. So you, during this time, of dealing with chickens shitting in a stock tank in your house, you rudimentarily get together the basic infrastructure that you should have got ready before you did. You take the chickens, you put them in there, and in not so long a time, you're a chicken owner. Everything's good. You feed the chicken, you give the chicken water. As long as nothing eats the chicken, you're good. And then winter comes, and you've never done it before. And I go, this is fine. Well, is it? How's your chicken going to get water? Is that pipe going to freeze? And so there's a whole new level of what you need to do. And this is the case over and over again. It gets easier as you add species because you've been through it before. Okay. You've been through it before. But there is a difference in overwintering sheep that are dropping lambs through your winter than overwintering chickens who, as long as the door gets closed at night, are probably going to be okay. And there's a difference between um, dealing with chickens and ducks in the winter. Ducks are much more cold-hardy than chickens are. So you, you have to get ready to deal with this change in temperature with your livestock. If you've been through it before, you have that advantage, but you also know there's a lot of things that go into that. And then the next thing, and this affects both of those other two, and this is infrastructure. So infrastructure is fencing. Infrastructure is a building that needs to repair. Infrastructure is an irrigation system that was working at the end of the season, but it needs some maintenance, et cetera. And then evaluating all the infrastructure. And you'll find that those are intertwined. Infrastructure and livestock go hand in hand. Number one mistake people make with livestock, they get, they get livestock before they have the infrastructure in place. But that's just the way to sit back and look at your whole property right now. 
How does the next three months and then the three months of winter on the other side of that impact me from a standpoint of my vegetation, my gardens, my orchards, et cetera, my livestock, and my requirements on infrastructure? What are the things I've looked at from an infrastructure standpoint? So it'd be great if we had that, or that's going to need some work. Because homesteaders, we tend to be really freaking busy spring summer and early fall and we tend to get some space some breathing room in the part of the year that's about to come and we don't want to miss the opportunity to utilize it to its fullest here's some things i do every year like this is gonna happen and it's a good idea to take those things that the things that you need to do every year put them at the top of the list a lot of them are so routine or not maybe the exciting thing, because building a new thing, a new shiny thing, is always better than an old shiny thing that's not shiny anymore. So the things you know that you need to have, and they need to go to the front of the line. And this is like task management 101 for me, because I am so passionate about things I love, and I am so procrastinatory about things I don't. And when I make a list of shit I need to do, I'll throw it in a little Excel spreadsheet. It ain't going to be fancy. I'm talking about like two columns, a list and a number. Actually, two columns of numbers. The first column is how important it is. What's the priority on it? A one, if I don't do this, something's going to die. A five, if I don't do it, nah, it'll be okay. And then I also rank them. How much do I want to do this on a scale of one to, one to three? One is I cannot wait to do this. Two is I'll do it. Three is I really wish I didn't have to do it. Well, the first thing I do is sort that list. And again, this could be a big macro planning thing or a week list or a two-day list to get ready to go on vacation. Same procedure. And I want all of the threes, all of the things I least want to do at the top. And then I'll subsort those by the one through five ranking on importance. And so something that's a high level importance, a one or a two, three of importance, and a three for I don't want to do it. That's the first thing that gets done. And you'll find a lot of times the things that you do every year, even if you enjoyed doing them and at one point, they become the thing that's like, I really just don't care about this, but I, I know I need to do it. So for me, one is year-end garden maintenance. And I try to decide based on what my goals are that year, I might not do the same, th same way every year. Last year, I knew I wanted to build out the new irrigation system, and I didn't know when I was going to get to do it. So we had a workshop here. We laid down a bunch of compost. We laid down weed blocker, and that was it. And we, we cut down and got rid of all the existing stuff that was still growing in the garden, and we just put it to sleep. This year, I'm also doing at the workshop, what we're going to be doing this year is we're going to be putting down some amendments. We're going to be putting down the compost. And we're going to be putting down a winter cover crop mix of like daikon radish, purple top turnip, uh, probably some garlic and onion mixed in there, maybe some carrot, definitely some winter pea, stuff like that. We're going to be conditioning the soil this year. And that's the approach that I'll be taking. But that is because I gave it that rest last year and I've, I've now gotten the, the uh, irrigation running the way I want. I'm completely confident in the system of irrigation that I designed. And I wasn't until I used it. So last year when I was going to build it, I was like, I could build it and it could suck and I could have to rebuild it. So until I knew 
I limited it to only the four primary beds, and I didn't do anything else with it last year. I, I was going to, like, I'll add it to here, I'll add it to there, I'll add it. And I'm like, no, you know what? I need to move a little more slowly on some things so I don't have invested too much in something that's not going to work. And so let's prove this out. Let's prove this out for a season. It's proved out perfect. So that's the approach we'll take this year. But you need to think about if you have garden beds, what am I going to do as we come to the end of production cycle? And there's pretty much a few options, and there's only a few. One, you put it to bed, carpet, weed blocker, whatever, and just leave it alone. Mulch, put down two layers of cardboard and a giant pile of wood chips, whatever, right? But put it to sleep. The other one is a what I'm doing, a winter cover crop. Some level of amendment, et cetera. And then what we're really planning, though, is mostly things that are just there to improve the soil. Maybe we'll take some yield out of them, but that's not we're not concerned about that. And then the third option is a true fall winter garden where maybe we're using row covers or something, cloches or something like that. And we're trying to grow as late into the season as we can. So you decide and you do it. But that's something it needs doing every year if you're a gardener. Uh, and that's also things like, you know, again, your pruning and stuff like that. Next up, your brush cleaning, brush clearing, your chop and drop, your pruning, et cetera. This, to me, is the best time to do this. Nick Ferguson would explain it as if I was going to have surgery done on me, I would want you to put me under anesthesia before you did surgery on me because it'll hurt less. And there's some truth to that. So when the plant is dormant, it's a great time to prune it. The thing about pruning, though, in the fall is most of your all your deciduous leaves fall off. To me, it's just easier to see what you're doing. There's just less to fight your way through when you're dealing with places where maybe things have grown in really thick and need a big haircut. Everything has already, since everything's dropped leaves, it's not dry, but it will dry very, very quickly once we prune it instead of decide to dry if we're going to burn it or make biochar or something like that out of it. And it's a good time to kind of plan for where you're going next year. So if you're going to be pruning and doing chop and drop, it's a nice time to do that. It's also a great time to do that because if you're going to put down any kind of winter seed, you throw your winter seed down, and you throw your chop and drop on top of it, you let it grow up through, and it speeds up the decomposition of the chop and drop. Or if you're doing uh, wood chipping or whatever, it's an easy time to do that as well. But definitely your brush clearing, your chop and drop. Compost making, I know a lot of you guys are you know, year-round composters. I'm kind of a once-a-year composter. Um, I do a deep litter in my chicken uh, house. I usually end up with about a foot of well-packed down straw. I have huge piles of wood chips out in my field. And sometime in this period, I'll make three or four really big compost piles, and they just sit there. And I draw them from them after about three months for making them as I need them. And most of it is still available about this time of year. And this time of year is where I want to take that compost and apply it. Maybe reserve some for spring, but mostly I'm applying it and I'm making it again. And if you don't keep livestock, that approach may not work for you, but it might. And one of the reasons it might is this is a great time of year to get a lot of material, isn't it? So people are still mowing, but people are starting to rake. If you have mowing, you have green. If you have raking, you have brown. Grass and leaves are great compost mixture. So you may be able to emulate this and make one or two big piles a year, do very little work, and have that fertility on an ongoing basis because I don't want to make compost every week. I don't want to make compost every month. 
I, I, I spent a lot of my life with a shovel in my hand, believe it or not, and I don't need to spend any more. I grew up the son of a bootleg coal miner. I'll use a shovel whenever I need to, but I'm not, I'm not looking for excuses to use a shovel. Next is your pipe maintenance and your general overall cold weather prep. This is something that needs to be done every year. Um, a lot of times you'll be out checking things out on the property and you look and there's a, you know, a water line, maybe an extended line out that way. And if you're smart, you put cutoff valves throughout your entire system. There's probably no place where a pipe goes more than 150 feet where I can't shut that whole segment off at, at the most on my property. So you might see it and there's a little drippy drip there and you just, you know what, well, I don't use that that much and I'll just cut this line off when it's not being used and it can drippy drip when it is being used or whatever. And that will be the place that the first time there's even a modest freeze, that pipe will break. So this is the time of year, all those little places you took note where there's a drippy drip or ah, that kind of looks like that pipe's been exposed to a lot of sun and seen better days and stuff like that. It's time to replace that stuff. It's also time to do an inventory. What do you have on hand? Do you have cement, cutters, right? I cut with a hacksaw in a hole when it's freezing and the rain's falling down your neck, right? Those, those compact cutters are great in that situation, right? You should make sure, like now, like all the time, but definitely now going into fall, that you have the fittings in every size of pipe that's on your facility if you have PVC. So you have half inch, three quarter, whatever you have, all the fittings. Not thousands of them necessarily, but elbows, straights, 45s, etc., size adapters, like being able to go step up and step down, because sometimes you run out of shit and it's not optimum, but the fact that you can use some step up and step down adapters to put it back together temporarily, that would be a good thing. You need to look at any pipes that need to be wrapped, any pipes that you need to put heat tape on, anything like that. Make sure this is the time now, because that way, one, you'll have less shit break, but number two, you'll have what you need to fix shit that will break in the winter. And something always breaks. And I'm not the most organized person in the world, but it is about this time. I have a cabinet out in one of my shops, and I go through that cabinet, and I make sure there is there's three sizes of pipe on this property. They're primary and one addition. There is some two-inch, but we don't do much with it. And there's some stuff to fix it if need be, but... Most of the shit that I have is half inch and one inch. And I make sure there's half inch and once every one inch everything. And there's a little bit of three quarter because there's some three quarter shit that I haven't replaced that was here when I got here. But I try to standardize. I make sure that I have at least two full unopened jugs of PVC cement. And specifically, I'm using a brand now and I have not found a reason to stop using it. It's called Fusion of PVC cement. I have not put it on T-Spaz for Amazon because anything like any kind of chemical thing like that on Amazon is going to be ridiculously expensive because shipping, even though that's free, it's not. Okay. And it's hazmat and all this other bullshit. So you can go buy this at Home Depot or Lowe's. It's called Fusion. It's a single step PVC cement. So you put it on, you stick it together. No blue shit, no purple shit, nothing like that. So you don't end up looking like you had sex with Papa Smurf on your hands, right? When you're done with it, it's just clear. And if there's anything stuck to you, it comes off. I have not had any 
I hadn't had any failures with it that I was like, oh, it failed because of what it is. Stuff breaks. PVC breaks. We all know that. My climate is very harsh on things, but I haven't had like routine sepos or something like that because of it. I highly, highly recommend that you use Fusion and, and uh, Husks and uh, someone else. I've got a couple questions starred for you guys. Builder of Castles. Go ahead. Keep asking questions just like you see this here. I will do Q&A at the end. Um, next up. I'm going to give you guys some specific projects that I'm going to do this year. These are like in my optional category, not necessarily things I have to do. Um, but one is I am going to build a meat curing cabinet. I have a really big chest freezer. And I bought that back when I used to drink a lot of beer and I used to make a lot of beer. And then I made a lot of mead and I drank a lot of mead. And over the years, I decided that I needed to drink significantly less alcohol. And so one of the ways that I did that was stop making so damn much of it. And I basically don't use this thing at all anymore. It is a huge chest freezer with a wooden collar that lifted it up so you could put the taps through it and all. And I think I'm going to barter or sell all the tap equipment, the kegs, uh, the manifolds, all of that. Take that wooden collar off, put the lid back on, and I'm going to turn that into a – and it should make a beautiful meat curing cabinet. And the way you do this, I didn't realize how easy it was to do. It's all about humidity and temperature. Well, temperature is easy. You get a thermostatic control uh, module, and you put it in there and plug it in. It turns it on and off, keeps temperature where you want it. Um, then the other thing is you want to be able to keep the humidity between a couple levels. So all you do is get a little humidifier and a little dehumidifier. And then I can't remember the name of the company. I talked to before. They make a little box specifically for this. You plug it in, you plug each into it, and basically you say, stay within this 5% humidity. So the, the humidity goes too low. The humidifier comes on until it brings it up, and it shuts off. And if it keeps going, it gets too high, the dehumidifier goes up in this you know gradient you set. I'm going to push it back down, dry it out a little bit, and they just keep balancing each other out. And again, you put about a 5%, so they're not always running like you don't have them fighting each other like you're turning them into like uh, like robot battle or something like that. You're just kind of keeping this general temperature and humidity. And as big as this thing is, I'll be able to hang tons of meat in it. I am really looking forward to this. And, and I'll, I'll tell you what, part of it is because I am a fiend when it comes, Inkbird, that's exactly who makes it. Uh, like fries with that says, sounds like an Inkbird controller. Yep. Inkbird is who makes it. That's the name of the company. I am a fiend for, for, for cured meats. Uh, all of it. Capricola, Vesterma. I mean, all, salamis, chorizos, especially this. I'm not saying chorizo. I'm talking like the Spanish chorizos, uh, linguiza, like all, like I dry cured, salty, funky meat. I love it all. And it's friggin' expensive. It's also on the menu as a carnivore. Eat until you can't eat anymore. So I am really looking forward to that one. And I will be making sure that I put out all the information you guys need to build your own systems like that. If you want to, uh, that'll be a winter project. Additional irrigation is going to go in this year. And I say, this is one of my optional ones. If I want to continue to grow stuff here, Beyond the garden, it's not optional. Life has gotten harder and harder and harder here 
from a, a standpoint of, of rainfall. The first couple of years I was here, my average rainfall was about 48 inches a year. Now, we had a very dry period every summer, but we had about 48 inches of rainfall a year. Last year, we had like 28. That is a big difference on a piece of property that doesn't have any soil depth to it at all. For those that have not listened to me before or haven't heard me talk about this particular thing before, my property has almost no dirt on it. I, I swear to God, there are places where it's two inches of soil. The deepest soils are about 11 inches, and it is solid limestone rock underneath there. So what that means is a rainfall that might, for a person with a couple foot of soil, hold them for three or four weeks, might hold us for three or four days before we're dry. And then once we're dried out, it's really difficult. There's a lot of things we've done to improve that, but when it comes right down to it, anything that's not an absolute survivor for this climate type needs irrigation. So the irrigation system I came up with, you can look it up on my YouTube channel, just go to my channel, slide over to where you can search the channel itself, put in irrigation. It's just PVC pipe with holes drilled in it, and it's run on little egg timer. They're irrigation timers, but they look like an egg timer. You turn it like it'll go anywhere from five minutes to two hours. And most mornings I go out to my gardens, I turn them to 30 minutes in the summer. This time of year I turn them to 15 minutes every morning. Done. And so there's some places. There's another series of beds I put in a couple of years ago. They have not worked out. Uh, they were supposed to get set up with irrigation this year. A couple things set me back. That's like 90% there anyway. That'll get done before the workshop even happens. And there's some other places where I want some trees and stuff like that that I'm just going to put this type of irrigation in because it just works. So that's something I'm going to do this year. I'm going to do something that's totally unrelated to being a homesteader. Uh, I have a bunch of aquariums in my property. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight aquariums just behind the camera. And uh, I'm doing some rebuilds with them, just new aquascaping projects, things like that, something just to enjoy myself with. And the beauty of these is as we get deeper into winter and there's a day where it's like my face hurts when I go outside, I can work on that. And it's th this is one of those things when I when I started getting all these aquariums about six years ago, my wife's always the one. She's the smart one. You don't need another thing to do. And Nick Ferguson was here. And what he said to her was, but no, he gets to do this. And so that's kind of my get to do thing. I like to work with aquariums. I got one right now. It's, I've just rebuilt it. It's given me hell with algae buildup. I kind of went to the extreme with a dirt bottom tank, uh, but it's starting to square away and it's probably going to end up becoming one of the most beautiful ones I've ever built. So I'll try to make sure I put some content online from time to time for you guys, for the few of you that are interested in my internal aquariums, uh, just yeah, tropical fish and things like that. And it's just, to me, it's a way to create these worlds inside. So that's something else I'll do this year. Uh, I'm going to do a revamp of our indoor uh, hydroponics system. Uh, the system that I usually run, I usually run it upstairs in one of the guest bedrooms. That means it doesn't get paid attention to as much. I've got a spot right over here that I think I'm going to revamp just to grow lettuce, spinach, basil, cilantro through the winter. And so it won't be a very big system. I'll make it as simple as possible. It'll give me another thing of um, another thing of content that I can put out for you guys. And it is something that I think that a lot of folks in the prepper space, uh, homesteader space, permaculture space, miss the boat on with the hydroponics because there is this weird, it's evil or whatever crap you guys have in your heads. And it's just growing food. And it is, it is to me, 
it is optimum for the winter because you can say whatever you want about soil this and outdoor that and you know I believe in soil and microbiological life yeah but you ain't growing basil in February so shut up except I am so I don't have to shut up I can eat basil in February and that's a pretty nice thing to be able to do and, and it's also I think there is a lot to be said for having natural looking beautiful things around you in the depth of winter so imagine that day it's cold out. Your face hurts when you go outside. You don't want to go out. It's like February 10th. There's icicles hanging off everything. You go outside and moisture on your face starts freezing. And it's just miserable. The sun ain't been out in two or three days. And you're Jack Spiracle, so you're working on your fish tanks. And right over here, there's all this greenery. And when you take a break, you go make some chaffles or something like that and throw some arugula and some lettuce and some basil on that, maybe a little bit of chives. So that's, to me, it's just one of the best things in the world. And I, someone's saying they're really excited to see that setup. I've put out this stuff before. I'll just be putting out kind of like a, maybe a more simplified version of it, but it's not hard to do. It really isn't. Um, and I'm going to be making lots of biochar. I enjoy making biochar. Biochar is basically drinking a beer and watching a fire. I mean, it's really easy. The thing is, when it's 110 degrees at sitting next to a kiln that's on fire for three hours is not fun. And so this kind of fits together with, one, I've really gotten into biochar over the last year, and I've really developed good systems with it. Two, this is the time of year for cutting all that brush and everything. And three, it's a comfortable time of year to burn. Four, it's not only comfortable, we get enough rain that you get a lot of safe periods to burn. There were times this year I wouldn't have burned anything. I was afraid to light the stove inside the house in the middle of summer. It was that bad. I'm exaggerating, but not that much. It was bad. There was, right up until we got our first rain of this fall, I was, like, paranoid. Like, I would see smoke somewhere in the distance. I'd get in the car, and I'd go find where that was coming from to make sure it wasn't a forest fire coming in. Um, we get grass fires here in our summer sometimes. They are, it is, it is less total burn time than forests because there's less fuel. But it burns so fast, and it moves so fast. It's ridiculous. We had a year, I guess it was about seven, seven eight years ago, there was the footage from the uh, one of the news channels, and it was a field that caught on fire, just a grass fire, burned through this field in a matter of hours, just a couple hundred acres. There was a pole line at some point in this field with just telephone poles. There was a pole hanging, still connected to the wires overhead. It looked like somebody took a giant blowtorch and burned the center out of the pole, and the pole's no longer attached to the ground. It was hanging from the wires. And that was because that grass fire went through there with so much intensity and so fast. It burned through the pole, but then the pole, I don't know if they came and put it out or whatever, but the power is still running through the power lines that are hanging from the pole. That's fast, quick, gnarly-ass heat. And I, I don't envy the linemen that had to deal with that. I, I don't even know what you do in that situation. But uh, I'll just say, suffice to say, there are places and times when you don't burn. 
and winter and wet is a good time to burn. So we'll be doing a lot of biochar. Some other things to think about this time of year. Um, and again, if you guys have questions, I only have three and I miss a lot of them with my blind eye when I'm by myself. But if you have questions, this is the time to get them in there. Use the word question in all caps like Eric is here. And uh, then give me your question and we'll be handling those in just a minute. But one is seeds, seed saving. This is the time of year to go, boy, you know what? This is this is the squash that I want to save seed from this year. Of all the squash I got, this was the big birthday. So I'll, I'll be getting seed out of this. I'll probably actually be bartering some of this. For those that are not on the video, this is my biggest uh, Trombuchino squash this year. Um, but it's a good time for that. It's a good time to go out and kind of start identifying some of the plants and fruits that you want to take seed from and getting that done. Because it's one of those things you're always like, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And all of a sudden you don't get to it. Right. And then you only get a certain amount of window to really take seed in optimal situation. So it's definitely a good time for seed saving. This is a huge time of year for food storage of surplus. This is the time of year to be looking at it like, you know, start dehydrating stuff if you're going to dehydrate it. Um, I'm going to end up in kind of a crunch. My tomatoes have done so much better since I started using the aspirin trick, which is when I plant my tomato seeds in my seed starting system, I put three aspirins in every uh, cup that has one tomato plant in it. When I plant my tomatoes, I throw three aspirins in the hole. And once a month, right next to the uh, tomato plant, I dig out two little holes in there, like I'm putting fertilizer spikes in, drop two more aspirin tablets in in water. Almost all of my tomatoes have lived. No, none of them been killed by blight. It got to be a hundred and billion zillion degrees out, and they stopped producing. They just stopped putting flowers on, what have you. And a lot of them kind of like wilted back. Well, the rain came. Temperatures moderated. It's still hot, but temperatures moderated. Dun 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 dun. dun, dun. Like Rocky Balboa, man. My tomatoes in my one bed. I, I need to put up a picture of this. They ate my pepper plants. I don't think I'll get any peppers out of them because I just. I don't care enough. They grew over top of the whole bed. I have a 12-foot by 12-foot squared-off corner bed, and I have tomatoes from one end of it to the other and four feet across it and out the back. And I have almost no tomatoes. I have blossoms and little bitty tomatoes everywhere. And so I'm going to get to a point where i got to call it for the workshop. Hopefully, ton of will be right. But as they start ripening, I mean, you just pick – Whack them in half and either freeze them or dehydrate them, or if you have a, a, a freeze dryer, you can do that. But this is something to be doing on an ongoing basis. I have an Excalibur dehydrator, nine trays. I don't know how many times, maybe five in its existence, it's had all the trays full. Usually it's running two, three trays at a time. I go out, I pick a whole bunch in the morning, whack on the trays, plug them in, and all I do is I have a little 24-hour timer, and I plug that in, I set it like 95 degrees or whatever, and I don't worry about it. The timer goes off, it shuts off. When I get to it, I put it in jars and, and, and put it away. And that's so much easier than waiting till the last minute to do it. And I, my big plants I do that with, though I didn't get a lot of it this year, is eggplant. The uh, Japanese eggplants, those dehydrate beautifully. 
peppers and tomatoes. And with the peppers, it's a combination of sweet potato, sweet peppers and hot peppers. And I do try some other things, but those are my big ones. But no matter how you preserve your surplus, this is when it comes. This is when it comes for everybody. But it really comes for us in the South because we get that slowdown in the summer. And, boy, a garden that makes it through the summer in the South, when you hit this, like, little bit of fall, it just explodes. And and mine's doing that. Um, this is a good time to think about your hunting and your fishing if you do that. For me, this is a good time of year to fish. Um, when I lived in the North, this was all about hunting. I don't get out and hunt as much anymore. But this is really a great time of year. And Roger says I should try fermented tomatoes. I like fermented everything. I, I do ferment tomatoes, but I don't really ferment tomatoes like I'm going to make fermented tomatoes. I make fermented salsas. So it's tomatoes, uh, cilantro, onion, garlic, jalapeno. That's that's what I ferment. And I, I really dig that. I really do. Uh, but a good time to start thinking about your, your hunting and fishing plans if you haven't already done so. Uh, and how that fits in with your lifestyle. One of the things that throws me off a little bit is kind of the best time of year for me to hunt is now. And kind of the best time for me to have a lot of surplus meat is, you know, after the workshop, after I feed 80 people for four days, I have more room for food than before I do that. So it kind of messes with my flow because there's the place that I hunt here mostly uh, I hunt doe on exclusively and I can go that, down there and shoot two doe and any pigs I see for 500 bucks. And that's hard to go weekend, killing some deer, sitting in a blind, reading a book, sitting in the, the little uh, trailer that they have for me. there, sitting out by the fire, drinking nice weather. It's hard to complain about. Um, but the hunts that I can do that on are earlier in the year. So later in the year, they're catering to the guys that want to shoot the big rack bucks and all. And uh, so I, I have to a little more timing with my meat uh, taking in now. But that's something to look at. Uh, I do a lot of fishing. This is a great season for fishing here in Texas from about now until it really gets cold. And even when you get those first few cold days, it doesn't really matter because it warms up in the middle of the day. Once you get into the middle of winter, you have to work a little bit harder for your fish. Um, and, you know, don't be afraid to just plan some downtime. I, I promise you guys, if you're new, there's somebody that started listening this year, there'll come a day somewhere near Christmas, and it might be a little earlier in the year because of how the weekend's worked out this year, because I try to take a good long break, but I'm going to be like, Merry Christmas to all and to all. See you next year. And for a good roughly two-week period, I will disappear. You will hardly even see me posting things to social media. It will be the shutdown. And I do that every year. And that goes all the way back. When I first got here to Texas, my first real job was in the, the field of structured cabling. And that's like data and voice cabling, telecommunications. I worked in central offices and what have you. And there was just a thing in that industry. Everybody was a contractor. If you were an employee, you were like a, like the guy I worked for was a field engineer for MCI. Every single person that worked for him was a contractor. And as a contractor, it's like, we don't need you. We're not paying you. Get out of here. And every year, somewhere before Christmas, they'd say, see you next year. And back then, it wasn't actually something I really looked forward to that much because it was a couple weeks without getting paid. And I, we, were, we got no vacation pay or anything, you know, and you had to learn to 
put your punt pennies away and what have you. But I made the best out of it. I enjoyed it a great deal. And uh, even though I had to scrape a little bit with money. And by the time I got to a point in my life where I didn't need to worry about scraping for money anymore, I didn't want to give it up. So even when I had a J-O-B, that was when I took my vacation. It was in between Christmas and New Year's. And I shut down every year. And I don't know what your ritual looks like for this time of year, but that's part of mine. Another part of mine is Thanksgiving is a, is sacrosanct, man. You don't mess with Thanksgiving. I do a Thanksgiving special show that comes out on Wednesday. That means Wednesday I'm deep into preparing Thanksgiving meal. And I treat that weekend, the Thanksgiving weekend, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I treat that the way I treat the Christmas holiday. Like it's family and screw off. And I do a lot of paging through seed catalogs and reading books and just sitting out and watching the end. It's a pleasant time of year, watching the kids play, listening to them talk about what they want. Like, do not think it all just because we talk so much about projects and things get done. It all has to be work. You know, they say man does not live by bread alone. Well, he doesn't live by work alone either. We are batteries, us humans. We are batteries, and we run in a very biomechanical and biochemical energetic way. And eventually our life force runs out, and we call that death. But in between there, we get low on power sometimes, like a robot powering down or something, and we need to recharge. Sometimes recharging is just a good night's sleep. Sometimes it's reading a good book. Sometimes it's a walk in the woods. Sometimes it's a vacation. And to me, and I, I really encourage you to explore this, making it holidays as well. I'm not a big person on days for the sake of days. People, you know, like happy birthday. I'm like, yeah, it was a great day. I got expelled from a birth canal. I, I don't consider it an accomplishment because I was born. I just, I don't care. I get people like, well, you don't like your birthday. No, I don't care. There's a difference between not liking something and not caring. You know, uh, I, I wouldn't like a pink Corvette because you've sinned against the Corvette. But if you get me a pink, uh, some puddle jumper Chevy freaking car, I wouldn't care because I'm not going to buy it and it doesn't look cool and it doesn't matter. You can make it any color you want. I don't care about my birthday. I don't care about a lot of things that people see as significant. The days that I actually kind of set aside as being special are days that are not special for just me or just me. Like, you know, even anniversary, like my wife and I are like happy anniversary, honey. Yeah. Happy anniversary. Honey. Should we go have dinner night? Sure. That's it. Like we don't make a big deal out of it. The reason I like things like Thanksgiving and Christmas is kind of these like book holder days and seasons. It's because they apply to everybody equally. It, it's it's a good time of year for everybody. And to me, that's a lot more important when it comes to family, friendship, and community than, oh, it's my day or it's just our day. I and mean, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. But, like, in America, to me, most people, I'm going to say everybody because I hate when people say that, most people celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas in some way, even people that have no interest in any religious connotations of them whatsoever. They still, it's still a uniquely American thing that brings in so many people. So take some of the time to be with your family. Take some of the time to just recharge. 
take some of the time to read that book you've been wanting to read, catch up on your old podcast you want to listen to, uh, things like that. But anyway, let's go ahead and take a few com- a few questions. And I think I've got all of the questions starred. We're going to do our best. I'm going to go quick because I do have something going on today later in the day that i got to get ready for. Uh, Builder of Castles, does, TS- do, does TSP members still have the message boards for connecting with people in a certain area to know if you want to move there? No, we shut down the forums. And we shut down the forums because people were not using the forums at enough of a activity level anymore to warrant our effort in them. What seems to have happened over the years, you know, when we started this show, it's 2008. People didn't really use Facebook and MeWe and Telegram and all these other social media sites, Twitter, etc. They were around, but they were not heavily used. And the discussion just migrated out off of the forums. The best place I would say to connect with people, though, is honestly the Telegram group. That, that's where I would start with connecting with people about, you know, you're thinking about moving somewhere. Do you know anybody there? Do you know of any opportunities there? Uh, that would be the place. Uh, Hogus said, Husks, I can't even say this guy's name. You got to you gotta email me, dude, and tell me how to pronounce your handle because I'm not really sure. Husks, I don't get it. Anyway, um, do you winterize your aqua, aqua, aquatic ponds? Um, not Really, but also, yes. So I actually have an item of the day for you today that's a stock tank heater. And in some of my systems, I actually put one or multiples of those to help things from freezing up and keep the water moving. I have very mild winters here, even in years where I have some severe winter events. The overall winter is very mild. My systems are such they will not freeze solid all the way through in my winter. It's not going to happen. Um, if I get into a position where the pumps are straining and they're having trouble keep running, I drain all the delivery pipes, I shut the pumps off, and I wait it out. And I don't lose any fish that way at all because the fish are producing almost no waste. The water temperature is going to be like 33, 34 degrees underneath the ice. All the fish just kind of sit there. Sometimes it's kind of cool. You get like completely clear ice, and it's very clear water that time of year. And you'll see like koi just kind of they look like a little pack of dogs all sleeping together on the ground. They just kind of sit there and chill out and wait it out. And so that's mostly all I do for the aquatics systems. If you live further north than me, you would have to think a different way. You, most of the stuff that I do that's above grade, if I lived above north, I would just shut that off through the winter. And if you have... This is something important for you guys to understand to think you can't do ponds. The average depth of a backyard garden pond in the United States put in by professionals is two feet depth, two foot. It is very unusual, especially if you're running circulation, that if you're two feet below grade, you will freeze solid. If you're in a really cold climate, go three feet. And people say, well, my permafrost is, well, if you're in the freaking tundra or something, maybe. But in most places, I'm telling you right now, when you get down and you're under that much ice, the freezing stops or no life would exist on the planet. It, 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 it is an interesting thing. If water froze the way every other substance freezes that we know of, there'd be no life on this planet. It's a really interesting thing that happens with water. 
If you've ever been in a lake and you start going deeper and deeper and diving down, what happens to the water? It gets colder, right? So you'd think the coldest water is at the bottom. But right before water hits 32 degrees and goes to freeze, something amazing happens. It becomes less dense and it rises up. So what happens is your water's colder, colder, colder. It gets to a certain temperature. I don't remember exactly where that cutoff is, but it's close to freezing. And all of a sudden, the coldest water floats back up to the top, and that's why water freezes from the top down. Everything else we know of, the colder it gets, the denser it gets. Water is the only thing we know of that does that, unless I'm missing something that I don't know about. If I'm wrong, somebody can correct me there. I've never heard of anything else that does this. And if it's true that something else does this, my freshwater biology teacher lied to me. Mr. Bowser, you better not have lied to me. Um, but what would happen if that wasn't the case, water would freeze from the bottom up, and we would have already had by now through our ice ages what you'd call a snowball earth, and we would have froze everything at that. So, yeah, no, but I think you got to look at that depending on where you're at. Uh, Erica says, question, do you have a suggestion for hearing small one third inch tubing used for rabbit waterers for hearing I don't maybe you mean heating I I don't really know what you're asking Erica if if you're still on with us uh, clarify that because I really don't know what you're asking me to tell you about there Uh, John Hendrick says Jack I love these shows so much better than the political doom show even though they are good too this year we have hardly had any rain on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi we exhausted all our water storage. Yeah, it, it can definitely happen. It has been a rough year from a rainfall standpoint. It looks like the El Nino-La Nina cycle is going to switch, and that is going to mean more rainfall for those of us who have been without rainfall for the last two years. Um, that's climate change. Let me tell you a little secret about this El Nino-La Nina thing. There was an El Nino drought cycle. In South America, prior to Columbus, that far back, it lasted not two or three years, or four, which is a long one. One thousand years of drought because of, like, basically a stuck El Nino-La Nina cycle. So, yeah, I may not believe in the climate hysteria, but being prepared for climate shifts Something you damn well better do if you want to be resilient. Rodney, should I till in the compost, then cover the raised bed, or just leave it on top and let it break down under the cover? If you're going to tarp it, I wouldn't bother turning it in. I wouldn't bother turning it in. If you're going to plant like a winter crop, you might want to really lightly turn it in. Basically, what I'd do if I'm going to plant, I lay down a layer of compost an inch or two deep, and I just do this with my fingers for those that are looking. I mean, it's like massaging a dude's head. Like, I don't you – know, it, it, what you could easily turn in a little bit, and I do that as much to break up the lumps in the compost and make the seed get contact as much as I do. Like, nature knows what to do with organic matter. So if you put down a layer of compost, and especially if you do a layer of mulch on top of that and then a tarp or a weed blocker – and you leave that sucker go until winter, the wormies are going to do more to till imperfectly than you ever could hope to. And you won't disturb them by over-tilling. The other thing I will tell you, and this is something I also do every year, put down a few scoops of feed, just whatever you feed your birds. 
Uh, if you're at the feed store, you can always ask, do you guys have any like feed that went bad, feed that got infected with weevils or something? And if, if they have that, by the way, if it's a feed that you'd feed your birds anyway, you can feed your birds that. I've always found to me, we got a couple bags back there with weevils in them. I can't sell them for full price. Would you take them for $5 off a piece? Yeah, because all my duck sees that is is more protein. Now we're using a custom feed, but I would still use any feed in your garden for this. You lay that down on top of everything else, and you put your tarp on that. If you are not going to tarp it, if you're going to plant it, put it down before the compost. That way it's covered, and you're not exposing it to the air and bringing in things you don't want to bring in. And what's going to happen is your worm population through your winter is going to explode. And they're going to go up and down and up and down and up. They're going to go up and eat. And then it's going to start to get warm on a warm day. And they're going to go back down to find a little place that they're happy to go back up. And they go back down and they go back up. And what are they doing? They're making poop channels up and down, left and right. Now, you add into that something like putting into some daikon radish and turnip and letting most of that just rot into the soil and in the spring, all those new wormy guys are going to go in there and eat that and replace everything with castings. Nick Ferguson, one time at one of the workshops here, said, like, how much would you pay somebody to come out to your garden every year with a post hole digger? And every foot, dig a hole a foot deep and fill it with worm castings. How much would you pay somebody to do that? People started raising their hands. You know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, a couple hundred bucks. Depends on how big the garden is, right? He's like, well, you can do it with 50 cents worth of daikon radish seed. Just plant a radish every foot, maybe two every foot, maybe four every foot. They're cheap. Radish seeds are cheap. And that's what those worms will do for you, though. Next up, um, Stan says, do you have any good suggestions for deer plot seed for my deer garden? The soil is hard clay. Can I get daikon to grow without tilling, then some vetch? but not much else will take hold thoughts. So your daikon, what I would do, you might need to email me if I forget, because I probably will. I've got some shit going on today. i got to take care of it. i got to get off the air here. Um, but there is a particular brand of daikon that is specifically, you know, it's been bred to be incredibly tough at deep ground penetration. And that's probably the daikon I was. It's probably what I would go the most with. And the vetch is good, too. But then this would be a good time of year to include a lot of clover and perennial grass and annual grass with that mix. The annual grass will create fast carbon pathways that will die off in your summer. The perennial grass can then grab onto. Same with your uh, clover. And you're going to have to, this is the thing. So the daikon will grow this deep root, but it has almost no hair roots. So it does what it does, and then whatever's not decompacted is not decompacted, and everything compacts, and then it dries out, and then, and then you're back to where you started. So you need something with a hair net of roots and something with a deep net of roots to go along with it. And, again, a perennial grass is going to give you the deep roots. Your annual grass is going to give you a shallow net, and your clover kind of does both and starts to improve fertility. So that's kind of the approach that I would take there. And I'm not big on tilling. Everybody knows this. You may have to. A lot of times when you're trying to take something that's just as hard pan compacted, it makes a lot of sense to at least disc that field in the first planting or even two. 
but that's a very specific application, and you might need to get some help with that. I don't know where you're at, but Nick Ferguson would be a great consultant on a problem like that. Hey, hey, Alabama says, are ta- tomatoes the only thing you put aspirin in? Yes. Yep. And it's because they're the only thing that I've ever had a chronic issue with that I did it and it went away and never came back. I only really have three plants that don't make it through my summer and and I have to replant them or whatever or just you know grow them in the spring and be done with them. One is squash. The squash get attacked by the bugs and the borers. They don't care about aspirin. It won't do any good. So I just grow my squash really early. I pick my squashes. I go on with my life. If they happen to make it, they make it. The other one is cucumber. I have cucumber get taken out on me a lot, but cucumber gets taken out here by cucumber mosaic viruses, which is are carried by uh, the cucumber beetle. Aspirin won't fix that. Tomato gets taken out by blight. I really don't have anything else that gets taken out by blight. I've had some rust and some other fungal issues with some of the beans, and I've tried it with that, and it hadn't really doesn't seem like it did anything. So the only thing that seems like it's worked. Now, I do have a belief, and it's a belief, it's not knowledge, that there is a plant that many of you may want to grow that you deal with blight with that may respond very well to using the aspirin, and that would be common potatoes. And the reason I think it would work is they're both nightshades, and they, are, they suffer from the very similar or even the same types of blight. So if you're having blight issues with potato, I would definitely, like, what does a big bottle of aspirin cost? Like two bucks, right? I mean, I don't, I bought like a 450 tablet aspirin bottle for like $3 or something this spring, and it's still over half full, right? So, I mean, you know, it's pretty cheap. Why not give it a shot? Um, and then this one says, have you planted trumbetta squash? I'm not sure what trumbetta is. If you mean Trumbachino, that's one back there. Uh, so if you want to clarify that, I'm going to look real quick and see if there was any clarification on one of the questions that I had. Um, Camp Creek Hill says, do you ship T-shirts to Australia? I tried to order a few T-shirts but did not show shipping outside the U.S. Did I miss something? We probably don't. If you want to email me on that, I can get in touch with Nick Covey, who runs my shirt shop. I also need you to understand most of the shirts you see me wearing aren't mine. This is uh, John Willis's I'm wearing right now from uh, SOE Tactical Gear, and uh, you can check that out there. I don't know if he ships to Australia or not. I would say he probably ships anywhere as long as somebody will pay for it. Um, I don't see any more all caps. Checking real quick here. Okay. That's all. I think I got everybody. Yep. All right, guys, I need to go. And I wanted to uh, thank you guys for being with me today. I do have an item of the day for you today. Remember, you can always support my show and the work that I do just by doing your online shopping beginning at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. There's almost 500 items that are in the T-Spaz catalog. And, like, if there's 500, then 498 of them, I own them and I bought them. There's, like, two that were suggested that I put in there based on good reviews, and I didn't buy them because I didn't need them. I mean, that's, that's how it works. Like, if I don't believe in something, I don't recommend it to you. I just don't. And no matter what you buy, even if it's not something I have written up, as long as you start there, if you start your shopping at tspaz.com, you help us out. Today's item of the day I actually mentioned, and it's I did pair it up with today's show for a reason. 
the K&H Ultimate All-in-One Stock Tank De-Icer, right? It slices, it dices. Now, it's really actually a really great product. Uh, they come in multiple sizes from 250 watts all the way up to 1,500 watts. Uh, there's a sizing chart in my write-up that helps you figure out exactly what you need to buy, uh, along with some advice by me into, like, not buying more than you actually need and understanding limitations on, like, how much power you can draw on a power leg and stuff like that. But I'm going to tell you what makes these really great. Number one is they have a little piece of foam in them, and so really all you have to do with them is throw them in the stock tank that you want to keep de-iced, and they float. And there are times where you may want one to sink. I'm not going to talk about that today, but the foam comes out if you wanted to do that. Um, I've never taken it out. I've never had a reason to. So you put this in your stock tank, you plug it in, and that's it. Well, Jack, what if it gets too hot? What if it gets too cold? No, see, it's got an internal thermostat. At 30, when that water hits 35 degrees, that heating element will come on. When the water hits 45 degrees, it'll shut back off. You don't have to do anything except plug it in and stick it in. And they also have kind of this little piece of plastic thing that's on the cord, which is really nice in that when you set it in the stock, it kind of keeps everything out of the way for you. Um, this is one of those things like if I didn't have this, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would do in the places I use these. I mentioned that, you know, I just keep a couple. What I do is when it's freezing out, I'll keep a couple tubs that I'll fill up at the end of the day if the water's flowing at the end of the day. And I put these things in them, and I know in the morning my birds have water. I also have in one of my aquatic systems that has a tendency to want to freeze up on me with the recirculating. I have three steel tanks in the back of it. Each one of these has, Each tank has one of these 250 waters in it. That system has never frozen. That is just with that alone, that system has never completely frozen up on me. I've never had a pipe break in it or what have you. Um, one way or another, you probably need these on your homestead if you have a homestead and if you have livestock. With that, guys, I hope you guys enjoyed the show today. I really appreciate you guys tuning in, taking some time to spend with me on a Tuesday. Remember, we are now on a four show a week schedule. I will be doing the Expert panel shows physically doing them most weeks on Thursday. And I, I guess this really doesn't matter that much, but I, I, I do try to do what the audience wants. What I did last week when I took Thursday off, I did the Friday show Thursday. I scheduled it to get published on Friday, and then I could walk away for the weekend, and it was great. I had a three-day weekend. I don't know if that's the smartest way to do it. Um, it will not make my life any more difficult to put the, the expert council show out on Thursday unless I have a week where they piked and I have to wait to get the last little bit of it done or something like that. And I'm wondering what you guys think. Should I be, uh, should I be putting that show out on Thursday? It just gives people longer to listen to it. It really won't affect me much uh, in any direction. Uh, what do you all think Thursday or Friday for the, uh, the expert show? There'll be one day a week without a show anyway. Why not make it Friday? I think that's a better way to go. Bill says, would it be good in a kiddie pool? I guess he's talking about the de-icer. It should work fine. It should work fine. It's pretty thin plastic. I can't see any way that heating element's going to get against that plastic and cause a problem. I I'm sure anything could happen. This is my one thing about kiddie pools. I haven't bought a kiddie pool in a long time. You know why? I got, I got tired of buying them and throwing them away. Kitty pools inevitably get pinhole leaks. They're not worth fixing because they're too cheap. They're bulky and they're a pain in the ass. You end up having to take an X-Acto knife and cut them up in strips and 
shove them in the thing and get rid of them. So I just don't buy them anymore. I've gone to true stock tanks and the concrete mixing trays that they sell at Home Depot, Lowe's, etc. The 20, they're either 21 or 22 gallons. They're plenty big enough. They last good three years, maybe more, depending on, on how you take care of them. And that's in our sun and our heat and our misery. A freaking kiddie pool, if you get a full season out of it, you are lucky. So I don't use them, but yes, it should work with that. I'll catch you guys tomorrow with another episode. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.